Chapter 10 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10. We Commence a Long Ride. Carnival was in full swing at Fraile Muerto when we arrived. Buckets of water were being thrown liberally over passers-by, and everyone was armed with the inevitable pomito or squirt of Florida water. The dark-eyed little rogues under the black mantillas made it very hot, or rather wet and cool, for the falcons with the aid of these detestable instruments. The night was one of revelry. The twang of the guitar was heard through many an open door, and at least a dozen bailes were underway in different parts of the town. Indeed, there were as many balls as there were houses, for all the estancieros, rancheros, and gauchos for leagues around had flocked into Fraile Muerto for the occasion. Thoroughly, the laughing little camp girls threw themselves into the spirit of the wild and beautiful native dances. Horse racing, cockfighting, and dancing are the only amusements of the pampas, and the last is the only one which the fair sex can share with the sterner. They certainly are not stingy in their preparations for carnival in these parts. Many pretty masquerade dresses were to be seen among the revelers. This afternoon, a grand procession of clumsy wagons drawn by handsome oxen slowly perambulated the glaring, dusty streets. Wagons and oxen were tastefully decorated with flowers and colored draperies. In one wagon was a band of musicians clad fantastically in yellow coats that recalled the penitential dress of the victims of the Inquisition. While two men worked, a huge squirt or fire engine pouring volumes of water right and left, rather too rough carnival play this, but all good-naturedly taken. Another wagon was full of pretty chinas, dressed in a uniform of red and black, laughing and squirting scent. At the Union Club, for we boast a club in our village, was the grand affair of the evening, the masked ball for the aristocracy. Thither we repaired. The club turned out to be merely a fair-sized room on the ground floor of a house. This was a particularly select entertainment, yet where the exclusive grandees of Fraile Muerto drew the line I did not exactly perceive. The door of the ballroom was on the street and was wide open. All who wished could look in and behold the spectacle, could even, as far as I could see, enter and join the dancers. The comandante was there with his pretty daughters, the storekeeper too and the shoemaker with his lady and family. These exhausted the list of the native aristocracy. Then came people with whom one did not like to mix, and on whom the daughters of the above swells turned up their little noses, gauchos from the camp, murderers and cattle-lifters, many of them, wild fellows in native dress and of savage mien. Mate seemed to be the only refreshment provided and nothing there is that will better pull together the weary dancer than this invigorating decoction of the Paraguayan yerba. On the morning after our arrival, Pepe insisted on taking us round his establishment. This caravanserai of the Pampas consisted of a large square courtyard, round three sides of which was low, one-storied building, simply a series of small rooms with doors opening on the said court. On the fourth side were stables and a blacksmith's forge. That forge, said he, has only recently become my property. It belonged to a Frenchman. Poor fellow, he drank it all away in absinthe, got drunk on tick, as you English say, at my bar. So now it is mine. And now, said Pepe, 
Come, I will show you my museum. And he took us into a small room surrounded with cases of arms and other curiosities. These, said he, are chiefly the spoils of your countrymen, taken by me in lieu of bad debts, all represent so much Kanye drink. It was a melancholy spectacle. Wesley Richards, Cogswell and Harrison, and like names were to be seen on many a fine arm in this collection. Here were the best shotguns and rifles out of English and French workshops. Martini Henry's, Snyder's, Winchester repeaters, Colt's and Smith and Wesson's six-shooters, swords, sabers, and so on. The relics of the ill-fated Henley colonists. Here, too, were strange-made Italian stilettos, some such as are served out by the secret societies to their initiated, all pawned for drink. But do not imagine from all this that Pepe is a sort of fraile muerten Shylock, an unpitying, grasping usurer. On the contrary, he is a very kind-hearted old fellow who has done many a good turn for our countrymen, as well as his own, who have come to grief here. He is beloved by all, save the authorities who entertain a wholesome dread of him, for Pepe holds very strong opinions as to his fonda being his castle, and more than one British ne'er-do-weel or Italian cutthroat has found a harbor of refuge in this hostelry. When the Sereños come to seize the refugees, old Pepe will stand at his door and swear sonorous oaths, and with a hundred hoarse blasphemies threaten to rip up the tripos of any who venture to cross his threshold against his will. Carnival was now over, so it was possible to promenade the streets with a dry coat, and the natives once more began to attend to the little business they ever trouble themselves with. We let it be known throughout the village that we were in want of four good horses, five-year-olds that were accustomed to eat maize and other hard food, for the camp horses will not do this, and a fortnight's starvation, at the least, is necessary before they can be induced to touch it. A pure-blood Indian offered his services. He said he knew every horse for ten leagues round. He would gallop over the camps and bring every animal in that he thought would be likely to suit us. A curious old ruffin this was, short, stumpy, with straight, long black hair, laughing, goggly eyes, bandy legs, and a sort of duck swaddle in the place of a walk, as is that of all horse Indians. For three days he galloped about and brought horse after horse to us for inspection, while other ragged and wild-looking fellows, who had heard of our wants, came in with tropias and single animals. We pitted the rival vendors against each other. It was amusing to listen to their voluble lies and denunciations. After inspecting one tropia of twenty, we picked out the best two and made a bid of thirty Bolivians for them. The owner laughed us to scorn. Why, forty will be dirt cheap for these two splendid thoroughbreds. The Colorado is the fastest horse over four cuadros in the whole province. Besides, you spoil my whole tropia by taking these two out. And so he argued after the manner of one that sells a horse in all times and among all peoples. After some haggling, we brought him down to 32 Bolivians for the two, that is, about 55 shillings each. Quite a fancy price, but they were decent animals and seemed to have anything but an objection to eating maize when we put some before them. They were five-year-olds, and in addition to their other virtues, were provided with papers in proper form, so we purchased them. In this country, the traveler needs no passport, but his horse does. 
There are title deeds to horses here as to land, and any transfer has to be made before a judge of the district and registered in the archives. A new title of Guya, stamped with a judicial seal, is then delivered to the purchaser, which describes the conditions of the sale and is illustrated with a diagram of the animal's marks. These marks are large characters branded in very conspicuous fashion on the horse's flanks, so that there can be no mistake about them. So it is too with cattle, and the market value of their hides must be somewhat diminished by the custom. But all this is very necessary in this land of horse-stealing and cattle-lifting. Our old Indian generally got a few reals out of us each time he brought a horse round for inspection. These he used to invest in the replenishing of his kanya jar, from which he was wont to sip freely as he galloped over the plain in search of other animals. This went on for three days. He got drunker and drunker till he could scarcely talk and certainly could not walk. But his seat on horseback and his discrimination in choosing and sharpness in selling horses was not in the least affected. Horse-dealing is a delightful pursuit for such as he. The gaucho loves to prolong the agony of a bargain. He would rather take less for his horse and linger over the haggling than be paid the sum he opens the market with straight down. We managed to pick up another decent horse for about thirty shillings, and were now ready to start. It was a glorious morning in early March that we paid Pepe our bill, drank the stirrup cup, and rode out of Fraile Muerto in full marching order. Each of us had his saddlebags under him and his blanket rolled up behind. A felt sombrero, top boots, a native hide belt six inches broad with a six-shooter stuck in it, and a striped poncho over the shoulder made each man look quite an orthodox roamer of the pampas. And now commenced a most delightful journey, concerning the direction of which I will make a few preliminary remarks. On looking at a good map, it will be seen that wild tribes of Indians, for the most part, occupy the center of South America from north to south, and that the Europeans occupy a band more or less broad along either coast. But in this part of the continent, a thin strip of civilization has been carried right across, connecting the eastern country of the white man with that of the west, the Atlantic with the Pacific, the camps of Santa Fe and Buenos Aires with the Andes and the Chilean territory. This strip is not a broad one, and as yet is but sparsely inhabited by the conquerors, but it is ever and ever broadening. The line of the frontier forts is ever advancing both north and south into the lands of the savages. Here, at Fraile Muerto, the strip is not very broad. If one travels but a few leagues to the southward, one arrives on the Indian territory of the Pampas, an almost unknown country on which the white man has no footing, even to the deserts of Patagonia and the cold shores of Magellan Straits. If one travels to the northward, again, one will soon reach another Indian territory, that of the Gran Chaco, an unexplored waste of forest and jungle and swamp that lies between the rivers Parana and Paraguay on the east and the provinces of Santiago Salta, etc. on the west, and stretches north through latitudes claimed by Bolivia and Brazil, who knows how far into the steaming tropics. It is down the center of this strip of civilization that the central Argentine railway is carried, a line that is destined to be the trunk line of the whole South American system when these countries are opened out. We propose to ride along the line as far as Cordoba, 
and there leave it to travel by the old Tropia track to Santiago and Tucumán. It is by this route that of old the caravans used to wend their slow way from Potosí to Buenos Aires. From Buenos Aires to Tucumán by this Tropia track, which winds a good deal, is 1,119 English miles, according to an old Argentine postal road book, which a friend lent me. By following this route, we should see a good deal of the country, and also much variety of scenery. It was curious to observe the gradual change in the vegetation as we advanced northward to tropical Tucumán, which is eight degrees nearer the equator than Buenos Aires is. First comes the green pampas of Santa Fe, where the rainfall is considerable and the climate temperate. Then, gradually drier lands, the camps of Cordoba, where water is scarce, and the sky is cloudless for long months of drought. Then the regions of the Monte, the brush that forms the northern limit of the Pampas. And then a hotter and drier land, where spinous bushes and giant cacti of many species can alone extract nourishment from the arid, sandy soil, encrusted as it is with glittering salt. Finally, another change comes. A range of stupendous mountains blocks the horizon, the Sierras of Tucumán and Econquija, branches of the Andes whose summits attain the height of 17,000 feet, mothers of many rivers. Under their giant shadows spreads a great plain, a land of streams and much rain, a steaming, hot, unhealthy region, breeding fatal fevers, yet rich withal, with great plantations of sugarcane waving in the tepid breeze, and brilliant orange groves ever noisy with parrots and other gorgeous birds of the tropics. For this is the province of Tucumán, known far and wide as the Garden of South America. I must not let the memories of that delightful ride lead me to the occupying of undue space in this book with the story of it, so let us prick our horses into a little gallop, as they call it here, and speed across the plains alongside the straight line of the railway. We took it easily at first, for sake of selves and horses, and made a six days' ride of it to Cordoba. Our first day's journey was across a parched country of burnt earth, scant and coarse pasture, with here and there a clump of algarrobas. The grass in this part of the pampas does not cover the earth in a rich velvety carpet, as in Santa Fe, but grows in scattered tufts with bare-baked earth between, a very grass of the desert, wiry and prickly. Numerous eagles, vultures, owls, and biscaches seem to be the sole inhabitants of this wilderness, a desolate expanse, with a horizon as is usual on the pampas and most characteristic of these plains, vague, mysterious, immense, seeming to be infinitely off, and melting into a waving mirage, as if some strange magic land far beyond. And a strange land it is that does lie beyond, for there is the wilderness of the Indian, a desert of peril and thirst and death, stretching, so immense is it, as head writes, from tropic forests of palm in the north to the eternal snows in the dreary south. But there is one sign of civilization about us, and that, with its contrast, tends only to increase the sense of solemnity and desolation. Only two thin bars of iron running parallel in a very straightest line till they meet in the far perspective like a wedge and disappear in the trembling horizon. 
but this insignificant-looking line of the railway has tended as much to carry progress and justice into dark lands as even that other thin red line of which we Englishmen are so justly proud. The thin edge of the wedge of civilization has now been driven deep into the barbarism of the Pampas, notwithstanding the fanatical obstruction of Cordovan priests and the vain opposition of novelty-hating gauchos, who tried to lasso the engine as it passed and found that they had something more stubborn than an infuriated bull to deal with. We rode on in the teeth of the hot north wind till we came to where a bush fire was smoldering over some leagues of country. All the grass had been consumed, the algaroba trees had been all more or less carbonized, and tongues of fire leapt up hungrily here and there. Between the hot sky above and the baking ashes beneath us, we soon acquired a very respectable thirst that an old toper would have given much for. But, alas, we had no means of alleviating it, so it was not of much use to us. Before dusk, we reached the station of Ballesteros. We expected to find a little town here, but could perceive nothing but two or three wretched huts, none of which was at inn. The only decent-looking establishment was a railway station, so we repaired thither, and to our delight found that the stationmaster was an Englishman, Mr. Colson. He received us with great hospitality, and we did justice, after our exhilarating ride, to the hearty supper he put before us, as did our horses to their alfalfa and algarova pods. We were now gradually leaving the region of the foreigners, but few British estancieros are to be found beyond Fraile Muerto, and we were to change the comfortable homesteads and civilized ways of the gringo for the, at any rate, as hospitable, if more primitive, homes and manners of the old Andalusian colonists. There are several native estancias around Ballesteros, so of course a juez, a comisario of police, and a comandante have been put in authority over the rising pueblo. There is some amusing scandal running about concerning these great men, which is worth repeating, so illustrative is it of life in these wild camps. What I am about to relate will seem almost incredible to those who have passed their lives among the well-ordered communities of Europe. But here, be it remembered, we are in the midst of a half-barbaric people, and a people that have never known what justice is, and whose state of civilization is in many respects far inferior to that of our recent foes, the Kaffirs of South Africa. Each of the three functionaries I mentioned above imagines himself to be the boss of the place, for their powers are rather vague and they are hardly men capable of understanding nice distinctions. Of the three, the judge, I believe, alone can write, and that only to the extent of being able to sign his name to official documents. This legal luminary receives no fixed pay, but is supposed to reserve one-half of all the fees he receives and the fines he exacts, a method which, of course, leads to unlimited extortion. The poor old gentleman, who looks more like a gaucho than a judge, has suffered a run of very bad luck of late. His cattle had perished of drought, fees and fines did not come in, for people would not be married or commit crimes as they should, so he was at last at his wit's end even how to procure a sufficiency of beef to keep up his judicial proportions. About a week before our arrival, he hit upon the following happy plan. He procured a few bottles of vile gin on credit 
from the pulperia and invited all his friends to a little carnival baile at his house. Several of these abused his hospitality and his gin to such an extent that on leaving towards the early hours of the morning, they commenced to reel about the township in a boisterous and unbecoming manner and waxed quarrelsome to boot. This was duly reported to their host, who summoned them all to his presence, severely censured them, and then fined each offender five pesos. He dined sumptuously every night for a week thereafter. Another instructive incident recently occurred at Ballesteros. It seems that a certain unfortunate debtor was so pestered by his importunate creditors that he fled into another province. It happened that a storekeeper here owed certain monies to the fugitive. On learning this, our old friend the judge, losing no time, hurried around to attach the debt with the intention of apportioning it among the creditors, after, of course, deducting a fair percentage for court fees. But alas, he was too late. It happened that the commissary of police was one of the creditors and had wisely anticipated all the others. He had visited the storekeeper and obliged him to deliver the whole sum over to him. A stormy meeting between judge and commissary ensued in the open road before the assembled populace. The judge demanded a restitution of the monies by the commissary. The latter refused to do anything of the kind and openly accused the old gentleman of desiring to appropriate all to himself and rob the creditors. Thereupon the judge, gliding over the retort courteous and other intermediate stages of discussion, passed on at once to the countercheck quarrelsome and said, Senor Commissario, you lie, at the same time striking him across the face with his rebenque or whip of plated hide. On this, the commissario reported by knocking the judge down with the back of his sword, called assistance, and arrested that high functionary. Next, he had him placed on a horse with his feet tied underneath its belly and marched him off to Fraile Muerto, where he put him in the stocks. Barbarous enough, too, as a rule, are these camp town stocks. There is no convenience for sitting down, as in our comfortable old English stocks, where Hudibras took his ease. Here the feet are imprisoned at some height from the ground, while the body is left to shift for itself, dangling down often with the head undermost. In this uncomfortable position, an unfortunate wretch is often left untended and without food for days, through sun and rain and dew. Another rather good story, and an authentic one, is told of our judge. Some time back, he was playing at cards in the baker's house with a capataz of railway navvies. The capataz was unlucky and lost considerably. Suspecting the judge of foul play, he refused to pay up. Thereupon, the judge determined to sue him, but being so far conversant with the law as to know that Nemo and sua lite potest judicare, he assigned this debt of honor to the baker, who then hailed the offending capataz before him. Our judge solemnly listened to the case, inflicted a fine, and sentenced the defendant to imprisonment until it was paid. But the capataz was a sharp man and found means to repay the judge for this judicial farce. He went off to another, I suppose a superior judge, who, though he did not think it right to set aside the decision of his learned brother, at any rate inflicted a heavy fine on him for countenancing unlicensed gambling. In this land of liberty, a license is needful for nearly everything, 
a game of cards, a private party, or a ball. Such are the magistrates who are supposed to administer justice in the camps, petty tyrants who imagine that their powers have no limit, whom the fear of assassination alone keeps in check. The poor people, the friendless widows whom they can bully and rob with impunity, are of course quite unaware that there are higher tribunals to which there is an appeal from the decisions of these ignorant and unjust judges. Perhaps it is well, after all, that they are so unaware in this land, where, if rumor be true, the highest as well as the lowest official has his price. The laws of this republic are excellent in theory, codified as they are after the schemes of Bentham and the French jurisconsults, but men capable of administering them are sadly wanting. The law, as regards murder here, is very extraordinary, too harsh and too lenient at the same time. Accidental and justifiable homicide is placed more or less on the same footing as willful murder. Thus, if an honest man by accident or in self-defense kills another, he is imprisoned a while and then sent into the army to serve on the Indian frontier, no pleasant and luxurious station that. Again, if a villain stab an old man in the back to rob him of his little hoard, he likewise is transformed into a soldier as punishment, and like all others has his chance of rising in the ranks. The late station master of Ayesteros was brutally murdered by a peon. He is by no means the only British station master that has been assassinated at his post on these railways. His murderer is now a non-commissioned officer and was pointed out to me at the head of an escort of prisoners on the march. This night I am writing my notes in a bedroom with a candle in front of me on the table. The light has attracted all the insects in the neighborhood who are immolating themselves wholesale in the tempting flame a very entomological museum that only South America could turn out at so short a notice. There are all manner of moths and beetles and strange creatures of all sizes and shapes and numbers of legs, some lean, some fat, of all colors, some very uncanny of appearance, and all humming and buzzing in different notes and keys. Verily, this is the land of bichos. Every month has bichos of its own peculiar to itself, but the omnipresent mosquito flourishes through all the months. Of this plague, too, there are many species. Some are enormous fellows, striped like tigers, and capable, I should imagine, of sucking your blood through a thick hide boot. Others small and black, but no less irritating. That word bicho, by the way, is a very useful one. I suppose, originally, it was intended to signify a beetle, but it means a good deal more than that now. It is more comprehensive in its meanings than even the Yankee bug. The term bicho is used here to signify not only an insect, but any strange beast. The gaucho calls the tiger a great bicho. If he were to perceive any animal, say an elephant, that were new to him, he would speak of it as that bicho. Not only to animals, but even to inanimate things is the term applied. I heard a native call a grain unknown to him a bicho. Old Pepe of Fraile Muerto would call his morning draught his bicho, and people talk here of putting spirit in their water to kill the bicho, and very carefully are too to do this. The water bicho has a poor chance indeed with the average South American. A violent storm of thunder, wind, and rain refreshed the parched soil this night, and was very grateful after the recent heats. 
End of chapter 10